Uh, my eyes are tired. Would you mind reading to me from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah? Comfort. Comfort my people, says our... A little further down, a few lines. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of Adonai. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Hmm. And who does that sound like? The heretic John. And what heresy do you find in those words, being that Isaiah said that? The heresy is that John has appropriated Isaiah's words by taking a spiritual description of God in heaven and applying it to John's physical successor on earth. Successor? John said, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And? God has no body. He cannot wear sandals. God cannot take human form. To say so is blasphemy. And where does it say that God cannot take human form? In the scroll of Deuteronomy. You saw no face the day Adonai spoke to you at Horeb. Just because they saw no form doesn't mean God cannot take one. In Exodus, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. This person would have to walk around with his face covered. So you would place limits on the Almighty? None that are not written in law. And if God did something that you felt contradicted the Torah, would you tell him to get back in that box that you have carved for him? Or would you question your interpretation of the Torah? When I was a student, I knew all your sayings. I read every word you wrote. Your teachings were so sturdy, so reasoned and pure. We are still students, Shmuel. All of us. Our understanding will never be complete. It frightens me that I can no longer predict your rulings. And fear alone ensures we remain ignorant. Asleep in the safety of rigid tradition. Asleep in the safety of rigid tradition. That's certainly not us, right? No way. Anybody recognize the clip? The Chosen, the miniseries. Yeah, oh, it's, it's absolutely awesome. I really recommend it. But either way, that clip illustrates the conflict we've been seeing in our uh, study recently through the Gospel of Luke. The religious leaders are constantly questioning Jesus. Um, they're confronting him and just unable to accept him or maybe more likely unwilling to accept him as Lord. And we're going to see more of that going on in our text today. So I just wanted to kind of set the stage and give, get, get the tone there um, for our context. If you're new to Eastgate today, um, we want to welcome you. I'm sorry that you have shown up on a day where you've got a substitute teacher. Um, my name's Julie, and I, I hope you'll come back next week when the real, the real deal is here. So, but today we'll be picking up in our study in the uh, Gospel of Luke. In chapter 6, last week we left off with the religious leaders. They were questioning Jesus' disciples about why they, questioning him about why the disciples didn't fast. And he answered them with an analogy um, about wine, saying new wine can't be poured into an old wineskin because it's too rigid and easily breakable. New wine requires a new wineskin that's flexible and can move and grow with the wine as it expands. So he was implying that this new covenant that he's bringing 
would require them to break free from their religious traditions and expectations. That this next phase of his kingdom coming, uh, they would have to have hearts that were open to him as he expanded the kingdom beyond just the Jews to include every nation and every person willing to see. Jesus came as the culmination of the old covenant. All the Old Testament scriptures, everything there pointed to him. But the religious leaders were so committed to their interpretations and traditions that they couldn't recognize their Savior standing right in front of them. And this morning, we'll look at some ways maybe our own religious views or opinions might impede our vision of Jesus and his kingdom. And we'll explore some ways we might avoid those sorts of pitfalls. So if you have your Bible or Bible app... Oh, here's this thing. Or you want to follow along on the screen. We're going to pick up in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. All right, it says, One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples broke off heads of grain, rubbed off the husk in their hands, and ate the grain. But some Pharisees said, Why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus replied, haven't you read in scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. He also gave some to his companions. And Jesus added, the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So, all right, so. In this section, uh, as well as the next, they both have to do with the Sabbath day, so we need to maybe get a little bit of background. I'm sure you're familiar with that command. Um, it's, it's the fourth uh, from the original ten. In Exodus chapter 20, it, we'll just go ahead and read it. And just ignore that it says Isaiah. It's really Exodus. Um, <clears throat> Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That's why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. All right. So here we have God insisting that we take a day off. How awesome is that? Um, He said, I don't want you or your family or your servants or even your animals working on the Sabbath. This alone should shatter any uh, preconceived notions we have as God, uh, God as a hard taskmaster. He wants us to take a day off to relax and remember there's more to this life than the rat race that constantly demands our attention he wants us to remember the one who made the earth and everything in it for us to enjoy god gives a command for a day of rest a day to refuel and recharge but the religious folks went on to ruin it by splitting hairs over what actually constituted work and so they came up with 39 categories of activities uh, uh, harvesting being one of them in our text And in Luke's really thorough description there of the disciples breaking off the heads of grain, rubbing them together, um, it turns out the disciples were guilty of reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. So 
in every mouthful of grain, there were four Sabbath violations. So, um, and that kind of was true of all these activities. They had to be so careful. And instead of, uh, you know, the Sabbath being a day of rest, it became really one of the most stressful days of the week because of all the do's and don'ts they had to uh, remember and comply with and all the work that had to be done the day before to ensure that, you know, they didn't break the law. And the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Torah, like they mentioned in our um, video this morning, are considered the law. Uh, they're referred to as that. And they had over 613 laws or commands in addition to the original 10. And in an effort to make sure people didn't repeat their history uh, of rebellion, the religious leaders had kind of doubled down on the law. And they added their own uh, oral laws and traditions that described exactly how, or in this case, how not, to carry out those laws. And their allegiance to their own interpretations led to an obsession with sin management, an obsession so blinding they couldn't see and instead condemned God when he showed up on the scene. So I think the first thing we learn uh, or we see in our text today is that religious pride produces a critical spirit. Thanks. Thanks to Rob's awesome artwork here. Um, so the word of God was never intended to be used as a weapon to criticize or critique others. It was given to reveal God's heart for humanity. And so often today, I think the Bible is still viewed and applied as, you know, a religious rule book to instill fear and compliance rather than a revelation to cultivate relationship uh, and character. Jesus and his probable exasperation with these religious nitpickers uh, took a moment to remind them of the scriptures that they were supposedly so knowledgeable about. He referred back to 1 Samuel 21, where King David and his men were fleeing from Saul and desperate for food. And they had come to the temple and they ate the bread that was reserved just for the priests to eat. David and his men famished, did something in direct uh, violation of God's laws, not some interpretation of the laws like Jesus's disciples had done. Uh, and it was permissible, not vetoed by the priest. It's taken a minute to remind them of that. Um, his reference clearly illustrates that the needs of people always trump religious protocol. In Mark's gospel, Jesus said it this way. He said, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not for people to meet the demands of the Sabbath. You know, I saw a Facebook post recently. Um, it said, when my religion tries to come between me and my neighbor, I'll choose my neighbor every time. Jesus never commanded me to love my religion. And I thought that was just so good. Um, when the living out of our religious convictions looks like anything less than love, it's probably time to do some self-assessment. Jesus didn't go out searching for sinners, shame. He came to seek and save the lost. So what about us? Uh, are we more concerned about what people shouldn't be doing than about advancing the kingdom? Is the evidence of our relationship with God drawing others to him? Or are religious convictions repelling them? I think a good question to ask ourselves and maybe somebody close to us is, what's most characteristic of my Christianity? Am I bringing good news and hope? Or do I exude criticism and condemnation? So I've told this story before, so if you've heard it, um, sorry. And uh, if you haven't, cut me some slack here because I was very young and uh, I did not know God yet. 
I, um, and my view of God had been heavily influenced by nine years of Catholic school with the nuns and their rulers coming around to whack us on the head, you know. So anyway, at this point, I was a teenager. I wasn't sure if God was real or not um, or why he put, he put us here if, if he was real. Uh, if it was all about do's and don'ts and confessions to some strange peace, priest or a bunch of Hail Marys to cover my sins, I, I just really didn't want any part of it. And so far, I hadn't been able to find fulfillment uh, in anything in this cruel world God supposedly had created. And try as I may. Uh, to me, God was either some demanding moralist or he was just absent. So one night... Uh, when I was around, I don't know, 16 or 17, I was driving around with some friends and I saw a sign in front of a church in the cove that often caught my eye. Um, usually there was a scripture on it or some message, you know, that really at the moment, you know, at that point just kind of ticked me off because I saw it as just some judgmental moralism that I certainly wasn't living up to. God was dealing with me. Um, this particular night, I had enough liquid courage in myself uh, that I pulled the car over, I jumped out, and I hurled several beer bottles through the sign. <laughs> Not my finest moment. And anyway, the next week or so, uh, when I was in the area again, I saw the sign repaired uh, with a message on it. It said, to the vandals of this sign, God loves you, and we pray for you. Now, that caught my attention. It was the first time in response to a wrong, I heard a message of love and from a church. And that was the first thing of many that God used to begin uh, helping me question my misunderstood assumptions about him. We have to remember that the words we speak, the messages we send or post or tweet, they have the power to either draw people to God or drive them in the other direction. A critical spirit will never draw someone to Jesus. It's his goodness that leads to repentance. All right, so moving on. We're going to pick up in verse 6. It says, On another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew their thoughts. Good to remember he can read our minds. Uh, He said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. So the man came forward and Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or destroy it? So, um, oh, well, I didn't finish. Sorry, guys. He looked around them uh, at them one by one and said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At this, his enemies, uh, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. Mark's account says they went out and began plotting to kill Jesus. Can you imagine witnessing a miracle like this and your first thought being, you know, let's kill this guy. I, I, I can't understand. Um, some serious hard-heartedness, not to mention hypocrisy. They were there to accuse him of healing, uh, but somehow they could excuse themselves of murder. You know, somebody's, somebody else's sin is always worse than ours. But uh, anyway, 
how does this happen? Um, and I think I think we have to look a little bit closer at the religious leaders' lives to maybe get some insight there. Between 6 and 41 A.D., high priests were appointed directly by Roman governors, and they worked hand-in-hand with the ruling Roman authorities. They were responsible for the upkeep of the Jewish temple and for maintaining order in the Jewish community. At that time, it was hard to distinguish between their religious and political roles, a lethal combination for sure. Um, Their positions provided an elevated spiritual and social status. So if Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah, they had a lot to lose, uh, at least in this life. Jesus came healing and helping folks, shedding new light on old traditions, and droves of people were following him and looking to him instead of them for answers. Someone was encroaching on their turf and causing unnecessary commotion and crowds, which could seriously upset, upset their elevated apple cart. If Jesus was the Messiah, they might have to humble themselves and be followers instead of leaders. They might end up enemies of the state instead of allies. Their position and their pocketbook would surely suffer, so they decided in perfectly mobster mentality to eliminate the threat. Uh, So I think what we see here is that selfish ambition cuts off our compassion for others. It's a dangerous place to be. A little bit further along in Luke's gospel, um, Jesus warns the disciples saying, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in marketplaces. They have the most important seats in the synagogues. They shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious, making long prayers in public. These men will be punished most severely. Yikes. Our text said they were watching to see if Jesus would heal. So that means they knew he could, which surely suggests deity. Uh, But instead of considering that possibility and rejoicing with a brother who was set free spiritually and physically, uh, their personal ambitions fueled a murder plot. Jesus reading their man, uh, their eyes, reading their eyes, reading their minds, sorry, looks them in the eye and asks if the law permitted good deeds on the Sabbath um, or if it was a day for doing evil. Is it a a day to save or destroy life? And. They certainly couldn't answer that because it would be self-incriminating. So to answer their silence, he brings the man center stage and heals him. Healing was another Sabbath day prohibition because it was considered practicing medicine. Um, Even though all Jesus did was speak a word and healing the man, their response exposed their wicked hearts, more committed to their positions of power than to the people God had entrusted into their care. The Pharisees in our story aren't the only ones who struggle with selfish ambition. It seems to be our human default mode. Even the disciples who walked with Jesus uh, argued about who was the greatest. We have to ask ourselves if there's areas in our own lives where selfish interests might be stifling our compassion for others. I mean, we are busy folks. Is there room in our lives or time in our schedules to consider serving the needs of someone else? Can we see beyond our four no more? Do our positions at work or in social circles or our status on the team, the committee, or even at church keep us from seeing, affiliating with, or meeting the needs of the hungry, the homeless, the prisoner or sinner? 
The Pharisees' religious status led to a coalition with the political powers of that day. Does our Christian status produce any political affiliations or opinions that cause us to lose our compassion or think less than of others? Do we feel superior to those of a different political party or view them as idiots or worse? I'm sure that's none of you guys. Uh, But listen, my husband has a friend um, who is so convinced of his own rightness and righteousness. He's ready in the name of Christ to take up arms against the other side. Forget compassion, you know. He's ready for conquest. Our Christian values should never drive us to vilify, hate, or wish ill on anyone. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm paraphrasing here, it it doesn't matter if we can recite the entire Bible. It doesn't matter if we give all we have to the poor or if we understand every spiritual mystery and can move mountains with our great faith. If we don't love, none of this matters. Our life is nothing but noise. And Jesus challenges us in Matthew 5. He said, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with the brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus cuts to the heart, identifying anger uh, anger as a source of murder. Anger and hate can't coexist with compassion. One look at the nightly news shows we have a long way to go. Um, We have to be able to disagree with our fellow man without demonizing them. There's this organization I heard about. It's it's, uh, called Braver Angels, and it's led by a man uh, named Bill Darty. And he and several others formed this group, this organization, to combat the mounting political and racial divide in our country. Braver Angels endeavors to bridge the uh, gap on the political front by bringing together um, members of opposing parties. And they address the racial divide by bringing together police officers and black men. And the goal in these uh, meetings is not necessarily to change anyone's views on policies or core convictions, but to change their views of each other. He does this through what he calls a fishbowl exercise. And in the political instance, there's two groups, seven each, seven Democrats, seven Republicans. And the first group sits in a circle in the middle of a room and the, the other group in a circle around them. And the people in the inside circle answer two questions and no, no interruptions are allowed from the outside group. The listening group job is to hear the inside group talk about the things that are important to them and note anything that they see that they might have in common. And the two questions posed are, why are your views on policies good for the nation and what are your reservations about your own views? So each group gets to hear the other one talk about their ideals with humility. And he said what usually happens is that they discover that the opposing group has some of the same criticisms of themselves that they do and that they share many common ideals. I just, I absolutely love this. And I think if we as individuals would be willing to lay down our own agendas and genuinely listen to each other, we'd begin to see people not as less than or opponents, but as fellow humans sharing the same plight. A willingness to really hear a person's heart rejecting any malice ascribes to them the infinite value and unconditional love Jesus expressed in laying down his life. 
C.S. Lewis said, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you'll find in him, you'll find him and with him everything else thrown in. All right, so moving on, we're going to pick up with our last verses, verse 12 through 16. It says, One day soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Here are their names. Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. So what stands out mostly to me uh, here in that list, in light of our context, isn't necessarily who's on the list, but who's missing from the list. None of the religious leaders of the day were chosen, not even one. The critics missed their calling. Their devotion to their religion and position prevented them from fulfilling their mission. God told Abraham he would make him a great nation and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. Israel grew into that great nation who God called to be set apart from all the others to show them what the true God looked like. But they couldn't even recognize him when he showed up at their church. Would we? I hope we would. The spiritual elite, the religious teachers and preachers of the day, the ones who grew up in godly families, went to Bible school, the ones who knew the word better than anybody else missed the Messiah, the one, the whole message they studied their whole lives pointed to. Man, that scares me. Uh, you know, we Christians, we place a premium on scripture, on scripture. We read it. We memorize it. We quote it. We apply it. We try to live by it. But I think what we learn from those missing on this list is that we can't idolize it. We have to reserve our worship for the one who wrote, spoke, and embodied the word. Jesus himself was explicit about that when he says in John 5, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. See, the religious leaders had an academic grasp of the word. They had a head knowledge that they refused to let penetrate their hearts and lead them to the Lord. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom. So I think what we what we see here is that only In following Jesus, can we fulfill our purpose? In John's gospel, he said of Jesus, um, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He went on to say the word became flesh and walked among us. John's telling us that Jesus was the walking, talking word of God. He's the visual of the verbal word that was given. And if we're to fulfill our calling, we have uh, to reveal Jesus to the world around us. We have to interpret the word of God through the character of Christ. Only when we see him as he really is can we rightly represent him. 
And we have to remember how he interacted with the word uh, while he was here. Remember when the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery to him, uh, they were demanding she be stoned because that's what the law required. Um, And Jesus said, you know, you who are without sins, throw the first stone. So they all walked away and Jesus asked the woman where her accusers were. And she said, there are none. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. And we don't know uh, how her life went after that, but I'd be willing to guess that encounter with Christ and his mercy and compassion changed her life forever. So the Bible's a story that starts and finishes with humans living in close relationship with God, a God who gave his life to restore us to that intimate relationship. Our goal in living out the word is to do the same, restore people to a loving God. Remembering his heart, his character, and our own imperfection helps us express love instead of judgment. I heard a story about a preacher uh, who was completely burnt out. He had a large church congregation and a family, and he kind of hit rock bottom after years of preaching the performance protocol. Years of self-effort and sin management failed to produce fruit in either himself or his congregation. Frustrated and exhausted, he decided to quit preaching. He closed down his church. Um, He loaded up his RV, leaving behind uh, the flock and his family. And he headed north with no particular plan, uh, finally parking in a cold, desolate RV park. And he stayed there for weeks. Um, And one night in the middle of a freezing snowstorm, his small space heater gave out. He sat on the floor, you know, fiddling with it, trying to get it working, And finally looked up in utter frustration to curse God for yet another disappointment. Through tear-filled eyes, he yelled out to God, I hate you. As he sat in the floor of his freezing RV in his brutal honesty, he heard the voice of God say, I know. And a few seconds later, he was sure he heard Jesus sobbing with him. That night, the preacher packed up his RV and headed home to his family soon opening the doors to his church again. The consolation and comfort he found in the cries of Jesus assured him that he wasn't alone. He found the strength to continue his journey in the voice of his Savior. See, when we get a glimpse of Jesus, when we truly hear his heart for us, we'll run to him. In his embrace, we'll find perfect peace and rest for our weary souls. Jesus is the Sabbath rest that the fourth commandment foreshadowed. In Matthew's gospel, he reveals his heart for us saying, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. In him, we can rest from all our do better, try harder activities We can rest from our failures, from our shame and guilt, because Jesus lived the perfect life and gave the perfect sacrifice so we could rest in his loving arms. The disciples were so radically affected by Jesus. They were willing to give up everything, many of them professions and provisions, leaving family and security, risking literally life and limb. Nothing could hold them back from following Jesus. 
they encountered and experienced a God they couldn't live without. And I don't know about y'all, but I want some of that. It's easy to fall in that same trap as the Pharisees, laboring, you know, under the performance mentality, becoming human doings instead of human beings. Jesus invites us so much more. He wants us to experience that same life-changing love he had with his first disciples. So how exactly do we do that? (laughs) You know, the obvious answers are read about him in his word and the gospels. Absolutely. Uh, Prayer more, more prayer. Spend more time with him. Worship for sure. But Greg Boyd suggests in his book something else that I, I stumbled across that might help us even further. His book's called Seeing, Believing. I highly recommend it if you're interested. There he says the most fundamental thing uh, believers need is to have regular times when we rest in an experience of Jesus as real. Times we cease from all striving and experience as real the truth that Jesus passionately loves us. As we are, not because of what we do. Boyd recommends using the principles of cataphatic spirituality, which suggests that the more imaginatively we enter into the things of God uh, with all five senses, the more spiritualities, uh, the more um, spiritual realities open up to us in a, a real and transforming way. You can do that in prayer uh, by envisioning. It's really engaging our imagination, envisioning the people that we pray for healed in worship, seeing Jesus, receiving our worship and Bible study, trying to, you know, just see the pages come alive and use your imagination to step into the story. And I think that's what's so uh, impactful to me about that chosen miniseries. It gives a concrete picture of the compassionate Christ I've come to know. If you've not seen it, oh, take, take the time to, to check it out. If you're not in love with Jesus, you certainly will be by the end of that series. But, but even further than, than just those things, uh, Boyd suggests scheduling a weekly time or a daily, whatever works for your schedule, but an intentional time where you do nothing but rest in Christ. And the protocol involves picking a a place, a physical location that's peaceful and free of distraction, as well as finding a private place in your mind, uh, what St. Teresa called her interior castle. Um, That's pleasant, serene, maybe a place that you had fond memories from. And he suggests recalling it with all five senses, remembering the sights, the sounds, the smells, etc. This is the place where you'll meet with Jesus in our imagination. As Tozer put it, gaze on Christ with the eyes of our soul. After arriving at both locations, invite the Holy Spirit to make Jesus real to us. And the goal is just be yourself, be ourself in all of our imperfection and allow Jesus to be himself in his perfection. It requires honesty above all, like the guy in the RV. It's time to put off all pretense, being real with God and all of our thoughts and emotions. He knows them anyway. We might as well bring them up. In doing so, we open ourselves to experience the real Jesus. In the book, uh, Boyd shares many inspiring experiences of his own and others. Um, many include visuals 
uh, where he could see Jesus, very much like the audible experience uh, of the preacher in the RV. And I'm not implying this is the only way God speaks or that he'll speak to you exactly in this manner. I'm just saying this might be another way we're able to experience more of our invisible God, to sense and absorb his life-giving love. I truly believe we can have as much or as little of Jesus as we want. Jesus said in John's gospel, he and the father would manifest themselves, uh, make themselves real to those who love him. When we seek him above all else, when we want him more than anything, we'll find him and we'll see him as he really is. And that will spill over to the world around us. So let's determine to do that. Let's not lock God in any religious boxes. Let's be devoted to Jesus above all else, determined to experience, embrace, and exude his kingdom. Let's refuse to be critical, instead being peacemakers in a divided world. Let's determine to let go of our selfish ambitions, embodying and demonstrating his sacrificial love. Sound good? All right. Well, thanks. Let's close up with the prayer, guys. Um, Father God, we are so, so grateful that you long to come close to us, God, as we sang about in our song this morning, that you you would come close, that we'd see you as you really are, that we'd get a glimpse of your love and your heart for each of us, and that, God, that would spill over to everyone we come in contact with, that our lives would be a magnet that draw others to you and point them to your life-giving love. Help us, God. Help us to do that. And I pray, God, as, as we do take the time to seek your face, that, God, you would. You would bring a fresh experience of your life-giving love to each of us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.